If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn with me. We'll be in two places. We'll be in Matthew chapter 16, and then we'll also be looking at a passage in Romans 12 that's printed on the inside of your bulletin. But all from January to June, we're doing a series called The House That Jesus Builds. And all of you know who have been in any type of building project that they have a way of taking on a life of their own. And they have a way of taking on a time frame of their own and an expense of their own. In fact, it seems like it's just a law of projects. And one cognitive scientist, uh, Douglas Hofstadler, has made the Hofstadler law. And his law states that any task you plan on tackling will always take longer than you plan on, even when you factor in Hofstadler's law. And uh, he said that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but, uh, you know, you can look at some more kind of famous examples of this, like the famed uh, Sydney Opera House. So maybe you've seen the Sydney Opera House. Uh, Professor Hostetler is actually on the advisory committee that set up the plans, and they originally doubled their intended uh, budget and time. And so their projection was that it would take four years to complete, and that they could complete it, uh, the budget was $7 million. Anybody want to guess how long it actually took? 14 years. Anybody want to guess how much it actually cost? $102 million. So... Even taking, even with Professor Hostetler, they didn't ex- didn't factor in. You know, I can't do the percentage of how you know seven million, a hundred and two, four years, fourteen. And uh, in Cynthia's growing up, one of her family's favorite movies was Father of the Bride. And if you've seen that movie, you know part of the comedic energy of Father of the Bride is that they're going to plan this wedding uh, at home. So Steve Martin's character. So pull up Frank and uh, Steve Martin. Uh, so here you have Steve, and they they just want to. He wants to plan a small wedding for the house, and then Frank comes on the scene, and uh, things expand exponentially. And every time Steve uh, expresses his consternation, you know, they have a song to sing. You know, party pooper, party pooper. Every party has a pooper. That's why we invited you, George Banks. George Banks. And the, the, the humor of the movie is that this project all of a sudden is just expanding and spiraling completely out of control. And, and out of nowhere, there's swans that now are in the living room and expanding on to the guest bedroom. And that's the way projects can be. And what's so interesting is in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says that he's about to begin his grand building project that he's going to build his church and it's going to be strong and stable and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And it's going to be built on Peter's great confession that you are the Christ. And then Jesus celebrates Peter because he's going to be the rock and that foundation confession. He's going to build his church and this kingdom is going to be built. And no sooner... Does Jesus begin to explain his building project? Does Peter kind of come on like Frank and just wants to hijack it and take it over? So let's look at this scene in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes 
and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And here we see at the very beginning of this building project, there's a great danger that someone else is going to hijack it and turn it into something that Jesus did not intend or do it in a way that he does not approve of. And this gets at one of the greatest dangers that we can have. And the danger that Jesus isolates for Peter is that your mindset is set on the things of man, not the things of God. So what I want to do, let's look at the text for a minute. And then I want to spend most of our time with a, a, a beautiful illustration of this found in Romans 12. But a couple things as you look at the text, just notice from that time on, from now on. See, up until this point in Matthew and in the gospel, uh, the primary theme has been Jesus' identity. Who is he? And it's culminated with this grand confession from Peter that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ means you're the the prophet who's going to teach us the way and the word of the Lord. You are the the king who's going to establish your kingdom and we follow you. And you are the great priest who's going to give yourself as a ransom uh, for the sins of many. And so it's a confession that he is the Christ. So up until this point, it's who is Jesus? What's his identity? And then from this point on, it's, all right, what is he going to do? How is he going to build this church, bring this kingdom, bring salvation? What is he going to do? And now his work comes to the forefront and the way he's going to bring it about. And notice this, from that time on, he began to show them that he must, he must go to Jerusalem, be rejected, suffer, crucified, raised. He must. You know, one of that one little word, it's just three letters in Greek, but it's one of the most profound realities. If you're going to experience the transforming power of the gospel, you have to see not just that Jesus had died, but he had to die. He must. This is the path. He must gather and form this new community. He must give his life as a ransom for many, and he must rise again. This path of crucifixion and then resurrection cannot be avoided. This is the path of bringing his kingdom. This is the path of salvation. This is the path of the restoration of all things. He must And then right here, there's this collision between Jesus's must, this must happen, and then Peter's expectation of what should happen. And then, you know, you think about Peter's counsel here. You know, in many ways, it was very well-meaning. He doesn't want Jesus to suffer, but it was still completely wrong. And what's fascinating is there's some verbal parallels between Peter's rebuke of Jesus and Satan's temptation of Jesus in the beginning. You know, Satan's primary energy of the temptation is, why go through the pain and suffering and sorrow? You don't have to. You can turn these stones to bread right now. Look, you can go up on the temple and jump down and you know God will protect you and you will have this dazzling show that will all everyone and they'll follow you. You're going to purchase the kingdoms of the earth. You can do it without the suffering. They're mine. I'll give them to you. There's a path to glory that does not go through the cross and the tomb. 
take that path. And here Peter is using the very same words, same idea that Satan has used earlier. And one of the things, you know, when it says that Satan departed from Jesus, he didn't just go away. He just changed his strategy. And there's echoes of the way the Pharisees attacked Jesus. And then here there's echoes even the way Peter himself is attacking Jesus. You know, his temptation was to avoid the hard path, avoid the suffering, glory without the cross. And you know, Satan in one sense is very eager to kind of fuel those ambitions in people. You know, that inner uh, human obsession with greatness and glory. All throughout this whole section, you're going to see the disciples wrestling with over and over who's the greatest. And their problem is their conception of what it means to be great has been so warped and skewed. And, you know, you look at Peter, you know, in many ways, Peter is kind of the model for Christian leaders, and he represents the church. And what's so fascinating in this section, in this, almost in the same breath, you see Peter at his very best. You see us, the church, at our very best. Who does the world say I'm? You are the Christ, faithful, bold, confession. Yes, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, and you're the rock I'm going to build my house on. Yes. And then two seconds later, he becomes a stumbling block. Get behind me, Satan. Part of the um, wordplay is that word for stumbling block, scandalon, is rock, rock of offense. So the rock that's the foundation can also be the rock that causes stumbling. And I find that so humbling. You know, you think about Christ church, you know, it can be both of these things throughout its history. On the one hand, Christ church has been one of the greatest uh, uh, forces for the radical transformation and ushering in good into the world. But then on the other hand, in the same breath, it can be one of the largest stumbling blocks for people. It can be a scandal on, a scandal. And both of those you see together in Peter at the same time. But what I want us to really think about this morning is what Peter does, his kind of primary problem that Jesus highlights is your mind is not set on the ways of God. Your mind hasn't been renewed. You're thinking in worldly terms. See, Peter had the right word, you're the Christ, but then had the wrong definition of that word. He had, you are the Christ, which was right, but then into that, de- that word, he poured his own definition of triumphalism. So you are the Christ, and what that means is that means triumph, that means victory, that means uh, crushing your enemies, And you say, no, you are the Christ, that means rejection? No. That means suffering? No. That means crucifixion? No. So see, Peter had the right word, but then had the wrong meaning poured into that word. And I really think that's the great battle of our age. You know, as we think we live, just like in this time, a battle over the definitions of words. They matter. And so think about, all right, what ways do, you know, our culture right now is clinging and promoting, in one sense, the right words, but what are the definitions actually poured into those words? And this week I was preparing, had a talk for the med students, and uh, their theme all year is the way the gospel transforms everything. And this week, kind of our theme is the way the gospel transforms your relationships, And in that, I was looking at Romans chapter 12. And so here in Romans chapter 12 is almost like a perfect illustration of this dynamic 
that Peter fails at at the very beginning. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Romans 12, or you can follow along on your sheet, because Romans 12, it begins with this appeal, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then what Paul goes on to do, starting in verse 9, he takes, he takes the concept of love, and then what he's going to do, because he's take, what does it mean to really have genuine, real, authentic love, and then he's going to define it for us. So that's what I want us to think about uh, these last few minutes together as we look at Romans 12 and this challenge. All right, everyone in the world is using this term love, but what is the definition that we actually pour into that? So, for example, in a few months, you know, one of the cliches you'll see everywhere is the phrase, love is love. Now, other than the fact that that's just a silly, nonsensical thing to say, because every one of you fifth graders know when you have a vocab test and if you put the word you're defining in the definition, your teacher is going to mark it wrong. So that doesn't really tell us anything. It's like chair is chair. You know, hot dog is hot dog. Uh, love is love. All right, so what do we actually mean? What's being poured into that definition? Because definitions matter. You think about in other arenas where definitions really matter. Talking to the med students, we were kind of joking around, like, when you become a doctor, and let's imagine I come to you, and I say, doctor, I'm depressed, I need you to uh, write a prescription for uh, medication. And doctor might say, well, okay, all right, well, let's see. Uh, tell me about it. You know, Tell me, what are some of your symptoms? Well, I'm tired all the time, all right, and I've developed this really bad cough that I just can't shake. And then the craziest thing happened yesterday. I was, I was eating ice cream and I couldn't taste it. And if not being able to taste ice cream is not the definition of depression, I don't know what is. So, I mean, write it up. And then I said, okay, um, let's think. So um, there is a definition for depression and that's not it. There is an actual definition. So let's see if we can get there. But you might have something else. So maybe let's do some COVID tests or some other things. Let's just see, because how we define your condition really matters to the type of treatment you're going to get. But think about how many other things in our life where we don't apply that same logic. You know, we looked here, it's Satan who's taken the good definition, the conception of Messiah, but he's hijacked it and poured in other meanings into it. And there's so many things that these are God's good gifts but then the question is, all right, what's the, what's the definition or how does God define these things? So even love, love is God's greatest gift to us. It's an essence of who he is and the great commandment of what it means to live a full life as we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love others as we love ourselves. But the question is, what does it mean to love? What's the definition or what are the symptoms or manifestations of real, genuine love? And what Paul does in Romans 9 is, you see the very the banner, he gives us, all right, here's authentic love. This is what genuine love is. And then he gives us about 24 different symptoms or manifestations where it says, if you are, if you claim to have real love in your life, these are the symptoms. These are the things that have to mark real love. 
You see it in English there, it says, let love be genuine. What's interesting in the Greek, there's no verb. It's just agape and then the word for hypocrisy with the negation in front. Love that's non-hypocritical. There's no verb. This is just the banner. This is the condition. If you have a non-hypocritical or authentic or genuine love, this is what it looks like. These are its characteristics. And so what I want to do is highlight just about four different characteristics that you can see about what is authentic love. How is it marked? And notice one of the first ones. Actually, let's just read the whole thing, and then we'll pick out several uh, instances. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So here, here's a list of about 24 different symptoms, manifestations of what authentic love is. And notice one of the first ones, just, you, did you notice the goodness? Look how it's framed. The very frame, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then the very end, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The whole frame is enveloped with a conviction and a commitment to uh, what is good and what is evil. You know, that abhor what is evil, the ESV kind of softens it. It's a strong word. It's hate. Hate what's evil. And then there's the word hold fast or cling to what's good. That cling is the same language about a man leaving father and mother and clinging uh, to his wife. It's a marriage metaphor. And what we see here is genuine love is not real love if it's leading someone to do something that it's wrong. It doesn't matter how much they would want to do it. And we see this from you know, every age all the way up. Even just this past week, we were disciplining our four-year-old, and he was doing things that he had been told not to do and couldn't believe. So, why are you doing this? And he said, but it just feels something like it just feels so good, or we're so happy when we do it. It's like, no, that's not a justification. You're still disobeying. And genuine love is a call for this deep, real goodness. And that's one of the great challenges. What does it mean? The good, the evil, it recognizes both of those things. You know, we live in a world where we're far more concerned about having the appearance of things, but not necessarily the reality. It's always kind of humorous. Every area of our life, like, do I want to be good or do I want to be thought to be good at something? You know, um, 
And do I want to have the appearance of being smart or capable or knowledgeable? You know, Jesus hits this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't practice your righteousness before people. That's the essence of being a hypocrite, the, the hypocrisy, where you want to appear holy and like you're a prayerful person or a dedicated person or a giving person. He says, you want to appear it, but not actually be it. And you see this and you think, you know, one of running jokes between couples as often as how they give gifts to one another. You know, for example, like if I had decided for Cynthia's birthday, I was going to get her a new set of golf clubs and a weekend uh, uh, at TPC Sawgrass. I say, well, is, was that gift for you or for her? You know, do you want to appear to be loving and generous or actually be? What areas of your life are you attempted to want to have the appearance but aren't necessarily as concerned with the reality. Jesus is calling, or this genuine love, it has a deep commitment to the good. But you can also see this in other places, like in look in um, verse 14. You know, this is such a fascinating passage because Paul weaves in and out how we're supposed to respond to one another. You know, there's the one another, one another, show hospitality, care for one another, but then also those on the outside. So in one sense, there's not a, really a double standard. It's supposed to be loving and, 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 and tremendous care for, for everyone. And there's a turn there in verse 14. But notice, it's bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And this is a commitment to good that's really hard. Because what it means to bless, what it means to bless is actually to will and desire someone's good, even though they're cursing you. And cursing, you know, in this world... Uh, they have a much healthier understanding of the way words work than we do. Like, you know, we have silly things like sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can't hurt me. They knew that was ridiculous. They knew words were power. And the idea that you curse someone is not just saying like vulgar language or just something you say when somebody cuts off. It's actually a projection of, of harm, of evil. You want, you in essence, it's a way of like attacking and undermining. That's why if somebody happened where things were, were going bad in their life, they'd start looking around saying, I'm being cursed by someone. Someone's trying to, like, attack me. But then also bless was a way of, of projecting good into people's life. So you think about real, genuine love has the ability to, when people are attacking, accusing, slandering, undermining, I can respond with wanting good for them. Like, where does that kind of power come from? Who does that naturally? No one. But here's a supernatural power. This is genuine love where you can bless and you project good into people's life. So authentic love's goodness. Notice also authentic love is just eagerness. Look at verse 10. You know, this idea, outdo one another in showing honor. It was written to the Romans, this Roman, Greco-Roman world, especially in the capital among the upper classes, was hyper-competitive. Cutthroat, hyper-competitive world. And Paul is challenging them into that world, outdo one another in showing honor. You know, I told the story a couple of weeks ago about our boys at the dinner table where they were racing with the cereal and slammed it down and one was finished and made a giant mess. And, and the response is, it's not a race. And then we go, well, maybe it is. Let's see if we can change the scorecard. And here's the competition. You get points not when you finish first, but when you clean up. You get points not when you're done first, but when you serve. 
You think about your life. Paul is saying this is what genuine love looks like. Genuine love looks like people competing to honor others, not receive honor and praise. You know, a couple weeks ago, I told you we had the meeting, you know, with middle school parents, and we were, it was, it was interesting, because even in one of the guys' nights out, we were talking about middle school, and, and, you know, I feel bad for middle schoolers, because I think everyone universally acknowledges that's just one of the worst times in your life. And I think if you look back, like, why is middle school so challenging? And uh, it's because, you know, kids, they're all so insecure. None of them know who they are. They don't know what the world is. And they're all just trying to, like, fumble and figure out life. And there's almost like this aggressive, like, I have to assert myself and, like, put others down. And just think, how would middle school be transformed if this was taken seriously? Like, how would middle school be transformed if they tried to outdo one another and showing honor to each other? Think about all of the social problems that happen in middle school that just would not exist. So how would middle school be different? Or, I mean, think about how would your office be different? How would your office be different if everyone there tried to outdo one another in showing honor and to be helpful? Or not even think about your office. How would your home be if every person in your home tried to outdo one another in showing honor? to be gracious, to be courteous, to be helpful, to serve. That was a competition. Or maybe don't even think about your home. Think about how different just your room in your home would be. I don't know how many of you in here share a room. My oldest daughter uh, has been recently trying to brainstorm ways that I can take on a second, more lucrative occupation because it's dawned on her that probably for her entire life, she's going to be sharing a room with a sibling. And she said, we have to find a way where I can get into my own room. And it's just probably not going to happen. So imagine you share a room with someone. How would just your room be different if the people in that room were outdoing one another to show honor, to show care, show Concern. I mean, this type of eagerness to do good would transform your room, your home, transform middle school. I mean, if any place could be transformed, that's a testimony to the power of the gospel. So it would transform it, eager. But then notice the other thing about being eager, that word in 11, do not be slothful in zeal, fervent. That's on fire in the spirit. You know, we think slothful, we, we did a series on the seven deadly sins and looked at sloth. And, you know, sloth, we think of laziness. But that's not really what slothful is. You know, it comes from the Greek word acedia, and the monks used to call this the noonday demon. And slothful is the idea that in a moment, um, basically it's more like boredom, where you're in a spot and you think anywhere but here, anything but this. And the way the monks would describe it is, all right, they called it the noonday demon because you get up early, you start your work, and you'd, have a, you know, you'd be going at your work, and then it'd get to be about noon, the sun's up high, you have your lunch, and you got to get back to work, and man, you don't want to. You just start dragging, and then you start thinking, man, anywhere but here. I would rather be anywhere but here. I'd rather be doing anything but this. And so you start fantasizing, or you start just doing other things. You know, I used to, it was always a dead giveaway to Cynthia when I had a major academic project come up, because that's when I'd start, like, rearranging the garage, or, like, cleaning our, my closet. And so you said, anything but this. 
It's not necessarily laziness. It's actually not performing the duties that love requires in the moment. So real genuine love has an eagerness to bless, an eagerness to serve, but also a willingness to do all of the common mundane things that we naturally don't want to do. Now, no third thing in here is that real love is emotionally connected. It's eager to enter in. You know, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. You think about which of those two things do you think is harder? To weep with those who are weeping or to genuinely rejoice with those who are rejoicing? I think if we're honest, probably the joy. I mean, think about it. It's kind of sad. Do you know how much joy you're leaving on the table by not obeying this command? You know, I think one of the hardest things we can do is when we see someone else receive the good that we desire is to celebrate with them. You know, celebrate when it's the neighbor's kid who gets the part in the play. That's what the screen's up because they have a play in two weeks. Or to celebrate when it's someone else who receives it. Probably the most powerful depiction I think I've seen on film is from the movie uh, Julia and Julia. Julia, Julie and Julia. It's a kind of biopic of uh, Julia Childs. And uh, Meryl Streep plays Julia Childs. And, you know, her and her husband struggled with infertility uh, their entire life. And then there's a scene where her sister calls her to tell her that she's expecting and celebrating. They do a brilliant job of faith because she's holding the phone. And with her voice, she's trying to sound celebratory and rejoice. I'm so, that's so wonderful. I'm so thankful. But on her face and in her body, she's just breaking She's like, why not me? Why am I the one receiving this call and not giving it? And it's the challenge. Do you have the ability to rejoice with those who are rejoicing? But in that, if we could, like if we could be transformed to do that, think about how much joy you would experience. I mean, everybody's success would then be yours. Probably every two years I have a crisis in my sports fandom. And so about every two years, Cynthia has to talk me off one of my... So part of... I grew up in Atlanta. Part of being an Atlanta fan is you just become acclimated to heart-crushing disappointment. And this past year has been... I don't even know how to act because, you know, the Braves and the Bulldogs have both won. And in fact, a couple years ago when the Falcons had the largest... They blew the largest lead in Super Bowl history, which is not surprising. If anybody was going to do it, it was going to be us. And when they were winning, I was like, I don't know what to do. I think they're going to win. I don't know how to respond. We've never won before anything. And so every two years, I said, that's it. I'm done. I am never cheering for this team ever again. And normally, you know, it says, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, you want to help me clean the boys' room? <laughs> but then a couple years ago, she said, you know what? You've lived in North Carolina. You've lived in Georgia. you lived in Kentucky, Alabama, and Florida. How about just whichever any of those teams are doing well, you just cheer for them, and then your life will be so much happier. And I thought, I said, you know, there actually might be some deep wisdom to what you say. I mean, I probably would be a lot happier. I mean, think about how much joy you're leaving on the table by not rejoicing with those who rejoice. This is the ability to enter in emotionally. But then notice also loves, just authentic love is practically helpful, just relentlessly helpful. Notice in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. What are the needs around you? Show hospitality, seek it. 
You know, the great two word hospitality, hospital, hospitality, show who, who's in need and be eager. Love, real love meets practical needs. But then this whole thing ends with real love's triumph. It's victory. You know, it talks about a deep commitment to good and not to evil, but evil must not just be resisted. It has to be overcome. We have to be victorious over it. How can evil be defeated? You you think about like all the superhero movies that are so popular. Like what do they do to defeat evil? How is evil conquered? You know, strength, power, overwhelming force. Notice what Paul says here about how evil can be overcome. It's overcome by not being haughty, not being wise, not repaying evil for evil, trusting in the Lord that he will uh, work these things out, not avenging yourself. But here's what you do. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. It was just remarkable. And you think, all right, where do you get this kind of power in your life? Because the reality is that there's many people who, like Peter, claim to believe that God is real, believe that God loves them, yet often we are just as selfish and just as messed up and anxious as everyone else, and those beliefs don't seem to be a power in our life. You think, all right, if I really believe that God loved me, this would make a tremendous difference in how I live. I should be more secure, more happier, more humble. But why? Why do these beliefs not take hold? And, you know, one of the most important things in order for them to take hold is you have to pray, have certain practices, certain disciplines. And one of those is prayer, and you have to pray these things in, into reality. So on the other page, here's a page set up about things you can do this week. You can pray this into reality, and we'll pray for that in a second. But before, you know, one of the, you know, here, here I'll give you your, your grand theological Mind-blowing statement of the morning. This is what you pay the big money for. Romans 12 uh, comes after Romans 1 through 11. I know, I know. And so before Paul tells us to love others this way in Romans 12, he has demonstrated how God has already loved us in Romans 1 through 11. And he tells us, like in Romans 5, that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And therefore, since we've been justified by his blood, how much more are we going to be saved uh, by him from the wrath of God? This is why we don't execute God's wrath. uh, For while we were enemies, he reconciled us by the death of his son. And so now how much more we're... We be saved by his life. So the reason, the power, where this comes from is this is how, you know, the power we have to treat our enemies this way is because that's how God's already treated us when we were his enemies. And he sent his own son who has died for us. And then we can be, have this tremendous security in Romans 8. Paul tells us, all right, if that's true, If you live in that reality, then what can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Where do you get the strength to do all these things? You get it because you're so secure in the love that you've already received from Him. 
Because what can separate us? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep sent to the slaughter. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors. We are the victorious ones through him who loved us. He loved us. And now I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor angels nor principalities nor anything else in all of creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And once we're so secure in that, it can naturally and easily flow out into others. We can't be Romans 12 type people till we experience Romans 1 through 11 type reality and the Spirit's transformation. So as we move into a time of communion, you know, what Peter was actively resisting was what this meal uh, graphically and beautifully demonstrates. And Jesus said, this is the way. This is the way I'm going to bring restoration and renewal and salvation to you and to all those who come. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this bread represents my body broken for you. Then he took the cup He said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for you, and it's shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy. We praise you for the reality of true, real love that we see in your Son, demonstrated to us on the cross, poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you help us to know that, help us to live in that. And Lord, we ask that these marks of sincere, genuine love would mark us. So, Lord, we ask that you help us to sincerely love those around us. Help us to care deeply for one another. Not because we know we should, but because we, we do. Help us to love sincerely. And, Lord, we ask that you help us to be people who are marked by a deep goodness. Help us to be less concerned with looking good and more concerned with actually being good. And then, Lord, give us the strength for energetic service. Help us, in the light of all your mercies, to be eager and energetic in serving you and serving others in in ways that uh, both we like and enjoy doing, and then all of the just mundane things that people need. Lord, help us be joyful, patient, prayerful in all things. And Lord, we pray that you would give and then help us to give and receive the practical help that we need and others need. So help us to serve others in a way that meets their actual needs. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.